Section 8 of L'Assommoir. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. L'Assommoir by Emile Zola. Translated by Ernest A. Visite. Fourth part of Chapter 2. But no one answered at first. Gervaise, deeply affected, moved especially by the thought that she was about to enter a place full of gold, stood behind the zinc-worker, stammering and venturing upon knots of her head by way of bowing. The brilliant light, a lamp burning on the bench, a brazier full of coals flaring in the forge, increased her confusion still more. She ended, however, by distinguishing Madame Laurier, little, red-haired, and tolerably strong, pulling with all the strength of her short arms, and with the assistance of a big pair of pincers, a thread of black metal which she passed through the holes of a draw-plate fixed to the vise. Seated in front of the bench, Laurier, quite as small of stature, but more slender in the shoulders, worked with the tips of his pliers with the vivacity of a monkey, at a labour so minute that it was impossible to follow it between his scraggy fingers. It was the husband who first raised his head, a head with scanty locks, the face of the yellow tinge of old wax, long and with an ailing expression. "'Ah, it's you. Well, well,' murmured he. "'We're in a hurry, you know. Don't come into the workroom. You'd be in our way. Stay in the bedroom.' And he resumed his minute task, his face again in the reflection of a glass globe full of green-coloured water, through which the lamp shed a circle of bright light over his work. "'Take the chairs!' called out Madame Laurier in her turn. "'It's that lady, isn't it?' "'Very well, very well.' She had rolled the wire, and she carried it to the forge, and then, reviving the fire of the brazier with a large wooden fan, she proceeded to temper the wire before passing it through the last holes of the draw-plate. Coupeau moved the chairs forward and seated Gervaise by the curtain. The room was so narrow that he could not sit beside her, so he sat behind her, leaning over her shoulder to explain the work in progress. Gervaise was intimidated by this strange reception and felt uneasy. She had a buzzing in her ears and couldn't hear clearly. She thought the wife looked older than her thirty years, and not very neat, with her hair in a pigtail dangling down the back of her loosely worn wrapper. The husband, who was only a year older, appeared already an old man with mean, thin lips as he sat there working in his shirt-sleeves with his bare feet thrust into down-at-the-heel slippers. Gervaise was dismayed by the smallness of the shop the grimy walls, the rustiness of the tools, and the black suit spread all over what looked like the odds and ends of a scrap-iron peddler's wares. "'And the gold?' asked Gervaise in a low voice. Her anxious glances searched the corners and sought amongst all that filth for the resplendence she had dreamt of. But Coupeau burst out laughing. "'Gold?' said he. "'Why, there's some. There's some more, and there's some at your feet.' He pointed successively to the fine wire at which his sister was working, and to another roll of wire, similar to the ordinary iron wire, hanging against the wall close to the vise. Then, going down on all fours, he picked up, beneath the wooden screen which covered the tiled floor of the workroom, a piece of waste, a tiny fragment resembling the point of a rusty needle. But Gervaise protested. That couldn't be gold, that blackish piece of metal as ugly as iron. He had to bite into the piece and show her the gleaming notch made by his teeth. Then he continued his explanations. The employers provided the gold wire, already alloyed. The craftsman first pulled it through the draw-plate to obtain the correct size, being careful to anneal it five or six times to keep it from breaking. 
It required a steady, strong hand and plenty of practice. His sister would not let her husband touch the wire-drawing, since he was subject to coughing spells. She had strong arms for it. He had seen her draw gold to the fineness of a hair. Laurier, seized with a fit of coughing, almost doubled up on his stool. In the midst of the paroxysm, he spoke, and said in a choking voice, still without looking at Gervaise, as though he was merely mentioning the thing to himself, "'I am making the herringbone chain.' Coupeau urged Gervaise to get up. She might draw nearer and see. The chain-maker consented with a grunt. He wound the wire prepared by his wife round a mandrel, a very thin steel rod. Then he sawed gently, cutting the wire the whole length of the mandrel, each turn forming a link, which he soldiered. The links were laid on a large piece of charcoal. He wetted them with a drop of borax, taken from the bottom of a broken glass beside him, and he made them red-hot at the lamp beneath the horizontal flame produced by the blowpipe. Then, when he had soldered about a hundred links, he returned once more to his minute work, propping his hands against the edge of the cheville, a small piece of board which the friction of his hands had polished. He bent each link almost double with the pliers, squeezed one end close, inserted it in the last link already in place, and then, with the aid of a point, opened out again the end he had squeezed. And he did this with a continuous regularity, the links joining each other so rapidly that the chain gradually grew beneath Gervaise's gaze without her being able to follow or well understand how it was done. "'That's the herringbone chain,' said Coupeau. "'There's also the long link, the cable, the plain ring, and the spiral. But that's the herringbone. Laurier only makes the herringbone chain.' The latter chuckled with satisfaction. He exclaimed, as he continued squeezing the links, invisible between his black fingernails, "'Listen to me, young Cassis. I was making a calculation this morning. I commenced work when I was twelve years old, you know. Well, can you guess how long a herringbone chain I must have made up till today?' He raised his pale face and blinked his red eyelids. Twenty-six thousand feet, do you hear? Two leagues. That's something. A herringbone chain two leagues long. It's enough to twist round the necks of all the women of the neighborhood. And, you know, it's still increasing. I hope to make it long enough to reach from Paris to Versailles. Gervaise had returned to her seat, disenchanted and thinking everything very ugly. She smiled to be polite to the Laurieuse. The complete silence about her marriage bothered her. It was the sole reason for her having come. The Laurieuse were treating her as some stranger brought in by Coupeau. When a conversation finally did get started, it concerned the building's tenants. Madame Laurieux asked her husband if he had heard the people on the fourth floor having a fight. They fought every day. The husband usually came home drunk, and the wife had her faults too, yelling in the filthiest language. Then they spoke of the designer on the first floor, an uppity show-off with a mound of debts, always smoking, always arguing loudly with his friends. Monsieur Marinier's cardboard business was barely surviving. He had let two girl workers go yesterday. The business ate up all his money, leaving his children to run around in rags. And that Madame Goudron was pregnant again. This was almost indecent at her age. The landlord was going to evict the coquettes on the fifth floor. They owed nine months' rent, and besides, they insisted on lighting their stove out on the landing. Last Saturday, the old lady on the sixth floor, Mademoiselle Raymondjou, had arrived just in time to save the Lingerlot child from being badly burned. Mademoiselle Clemence, one who took in ironing, well, she lived life as she pleased. She was so kind to animals, though, and had such a good heart that you couldn't say anything against her. 
It was a pity, a fine girl like her, the company she kept. She'd be walking the streets before long. Look, here's one, said Laurier to his wife, giving her the piece of chain he'd been working on since his lunch. You can trim it. And he added, with the persistence of a man who does not easily relinquish a joke, another four feet and a half. That brings me nearer to Versailles. Madame Laurier, after tempering it again, trimmed it by passing it through the regulating draw-plate. Then she put it in a little copper saucepan with a long handle, full of lye-water, and placed it over the fire of the forge. Gervaise, again pushed forward by Coupeau, had to follow this last operation. When the chain was thoroughly cleansed, it appeared a dull red colour. It was finished and ready to be delivered. "'They are always delivered like that, in their rough state,' the zinc-worker explained. The polishers rubbed them afterwards with cloths. Gervaise felt her courage failing her. The heat, more and more intense, was suffocating her. They kept the door shut, because Laurier caught cold from the least draught. Then, as they still did not speak of the marriage, she wanted to go away and gently pulled Coupeau's jacket. He understood. Besides, he also was beginning to feel ill at ease and vexed at their affectation of silence. "'Well, we're off,' said he. "'We mustn't keep you from your work.' He moved about for a moment, waiting, hoping for a word or some allusion or other. At length he decided to broach the subject himself. "'I say, Laurier, we're counting on you to be my wife's witness.' The chainmaker pretended, with a chuckle, to be greatly surprised, whilst his wife, leaving her draw-plates, placed herself in the middle of the workroom. "'So it's serious, then,' murmured he. "'That confounded young Cassis, one never knows whether he's joking or not.' "'Ah, yes!' "'Madame's the person involved,' said the wife in her turn, as she stared rudely at Gervaise. "'Mon Dieu! We've no advice to give you. We haven't. It's a funny idea to go and get married all the same. Anyhow, it's your own wish. When it doesn't succeed, one's only got oneself to blame, that's all. And it doesn't often succeed. Not often. Not often.' She uttered these last words slower and slower, and, shaking her head, she looked from the young woman's face to her hands, and then to her feet as though she had wished to undress her and see the very pores of her skin. She must have found her better than she expected. "'My brother is perfectly free,' she continued more stiffly. "'No doubt the family might have wished. One always makes projects. But things take such funny turns. For myself, I don't want to have any unpleasantness. Had he brought us the lowest of the low, I should merely have said, "'Marry her and go to blazes. He was not badly off, though, here with us. He's fat enough.' One can very well see he didn't fast much, and he always found his soup hot right on time. I say, Laurier, don't you think Madame's like Therese? You know who I mean, that woman who used to live opposite, and who died of consumption. Yes, there is a certain resemblance, replied the chainmaker. And you've got two children, Madame. Now, I must admit, I said to my brother, I can't understand how you can want to marry a woman who's got two children. You mustn't be offended if I consult his interests. It's only natural." You don't look strong, either. Don't you think, Laurier, that Madame doesn't look very strong? No, no, she's not strong. They did not mention her leg, but Gervaise understood by their side glances and the curling of their lips that they were alluding to it. She stood before them, wrapped in her thin shawl with the yellow palms, replying in monosyllables as though in the presence of her judges. Coupeau, seeing she was suffering, ended by exclaiming, "'All that's nothing to do with it. What you are talking about isn't important.' The wedding will take place on Saturday, July 29th. I calculated by the almanac. Is it settled? Does it suit you? Oh, it's all the same to us, said his sister. 
There was no necessity to consult us. I shan't prevent Laurier being witness. I only want peace and quiet. Gervaise, hanging her head, not knowing what to do with herself, had put the toe of her boot through one of the openings in the wooden screen which covered the tiled floor of the workroom. Then, afraid of having disturbed something when she had withdrawn it, she stooped down and felt about with her hand. Laurier hastily brought the lamp, and he examined her fingers suspiciously. "'You must be careful,' said he. "'The tiny bits of gold stick to the shoes and get carried away without one knowing it.' It was all to do with business. The employers didn't allow a single speck for waste. He showed her the rabbit's foot he used to brush off any flecks of gold left on the cheville, and the leather he kept on his lap to catch any gold that fell. Twice weekly the shop was swept out carefully, the sweepings collected and burned, and the ashes sifted. This recovered up to twenty-five or thirty francs worth of gold a month. Madame Laurier could not take her eyes from Gervaise's shoes. "'There is no reason to get angry,' murmured she with an amiable smile. "'But perhaps Madame would not mind looking at the soles of her shoes?' And Gervaise, turning very red, sat down again, and holding up her feet, showed that there was nothing clinging to them. Coupeau had opened the door, exclaiming, "'Good night!' in an abrupt tone of voice. He called to her from the corridor. Then she in her turn went off, after stammering a few polite words. She hoped to see them again, and that they would all agree well together. Both of the Lauriers had already gone back to their work at the far end of their dark hole of a workroom. Madame Laurier, her skin reflecting the red glow from the bed of coals, was drawing on another wire each effort swelling her neck and making the strained muscles stand out like taut cords. Her husband, hunched over beneath the greenish gleam of the globe, was starting another length of chain, twisting each link with his pliers, pressing it on one side, inserting it into the next link above, opening it again with a pointed tool, continuously, mechanically, not wasting a motion, even to wipe the sweat from his face. When Gervaise emerged from the corridor onto the landing, she could not help saying, with tears in her eyes, "'That doesn't promise much happiness.' Coupeau shook his head furiously. He would get even with Laurier for that evening. Had anyone ever seen such a miserly fellow? To think that they were going to walk off with two or three grains of his gold dust! All the fuss they made was from pure avarice!' His sister thought perhaps that he would never marry, so as to enable her to economize four sous on her dinner every day. However, it would take place all the same, on July twenty-ninth. He did not care a hang for them. Nevertheless, Gervaise still felt depressed. Tormented by a foolish fearfulness, she peered anxiously into every dark shadow along the stair-rail as she descended. It was dark and deserted at this hour, lit only by a single gas-jet on the second floor. In the shadowy depths of the dark pit it gave a spot of brightness, even with its flame turned so low. It was now silent behind the closed doors. The weary laborers had gone to sleep after eating. However, there was a soft laugh from Mademoiselle Clemence's room, and a ray of light shone through the keyhole of Mademoiselle Remanjou's door. She was still busy, cutting out dresses for the dolls. Downstairs at Madame Gaudron's a child was crying. The sinks on the landings smelled more offensive than ever in the midst of the darkness and stillness. In the courtyard, Gervaise turned back for a last look at the tenement, as Coupeau called out to the concierge. The building seemed to have grown larger under the moonless sky. The drip, drip of water from the faucet sounded loud in the quiet. Gervaise felt that the building was threatening to suffocate her, 
and a chill went through her body. It was a childish fear, and she smiled at it a moment later. "'Watch your step,' warned Coupeau. To get to the entrance, Gervaise had to jump over a white puddle that had drained from the dye shop. The puddle was blue now, the deep blue of a summer sky. The reflections from the night light of the concierge sparkled in it like stars. End of chapter 2